Hello and welcome to Connected. Uh, this is Side Street Studio Arts Podcast, where we have conversations with members of the arts community. Um, I'm Erin Rayberg. I'm one of the founders and executive directors of Side Street Studio Arts. And this week, I'm going to be talking to Eric Momquist, the executive director of the Elgin Symphony Orchestra. Newish. Yeah, you know, I, I, you're probably quite weathered <laughs> right now, but newish executive director to the Elgin Symphony Orchestra. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Erin. It's great to be with you. Um, Eric and I have gotten to know each other in uh, fits and starts <laughs> over this <laughs> pandemic, which has brought us together, I feel, um, <laughs> in an yeah. way. I mean, that's, and that's been, I, you know, my, uh, my tenure at the ESO as executive director started in May, which means that most of my relationships have, have uh, started in a very similar way where we've met over camera, had a chance to interact in an outdoor setting. And now here we are back again, uh, uh-huh. electronically hanging out. I feel like we've managed to hit on everything from problems plaguing the arts world to real housewives to, you know, food and drink to animals. Like we're, we're, we're firing on all cylinders. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so you are executive director of the Elgin Symphony Orchestra. And you said that kicked off in May, but you were with them before that too, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I came out in January uh, where I took over the role of Director of Artistic Operations and Planning. Um, uh, and the part of the intention of this role is, uh, is was to come out here, get to know the community a bit, and then move into the executive role after I'd had a chance to get to know uh, yeah, the patron base in the Elgin community a little bit better from having been gone for so long. Tell us a little bit about the storied ESO. It's, it's been around a minute and, and done some, some good things. Yeah, well, I mean, this was supposed to be our 71st season. We're still considering it our 71st season, although it's not anywhere near what we had, uh, what we had initially planned. Uh, the Elgin Symphony Orchestra started as a, as a community ensemble, as so many ensembles of this type have. It was in 1950 when Douglas Steensland, who at the time was the, um, the orchestra director at Elgin High School, uh, chose to start a civic orchestra to support the Elgin Choral Union, which is, we now know as the Elgin Master Chorale, in a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So he pulled together this group, and uh, after the performance, it was a big success, and they decided to keep it going. Uh, it was a community orchestra up until the late 70s when they hired uh, a woman by the name of Margaret Hillis, who was a longtime uh, conductor of the Chicago Symphony Chorus, uh, was hired in. Uh, she was known primarily as a choral conductor, but her big passion uh, was orchestral conducting. At the time, it was exceptionally rare to have a woman on the podium of an orchestral ensemble. And so uh, she, was, uh, she was kind of relegated to the choral community. But she was hired in Elgin to take the orchestra from a community orchestra to a professional ensemble. Uh, it became a professional band in 1985, and uh, and her assistant Robert Hansen uh, took over from her in uh, around the same time. And uh, the rest is history. At this point, we've grown into the largest orchestral organization in the state outside of uh, the city of Chicago. It's easy to forget. I mean, what arts organization or nonprofit doesn't have those grassroots? you know, beginnings. And after 71 years, it's easy to forget, right, that it started as a group of artists coming together to do what they were good at and share with the community. 
You know, I think that it is really what gives the ESO its really unique character is the fact that there are still, I would say, probably half of this orchestra uh, that currently sits on the stage uh, served together with people that started as volunteers in that orchestra that were members of the community. So they truly, I, you know, I'm the son of a Elgin Symphony musician as well, and my my father was the uh, was the stand partner of the great Gene Hove, who uh, who uh, was a, a teacher at Elgin High School for a long time. And um, there's this real connection between the professional players that have come since the orchestra has grown um, to the to the community roots that that grew it. Um, and that's not that doesn't take place everywhere. We're lucky to have that what did that if you know what did those early years what did the makeup of those musicians look like how many were there were they mostly Algenites? what you know what did that look like yeah when it started it was a lot of um i mean there's so many quality teachers that lose an outlet to play and this is this is true today and there's there's still outlets for this although you know we're less that the home for that than we we once were but uh, you know i was uh, in my undergraduate degree a music education major and was so lucky to be around phenomenal musicians and you know teaching is an all-consuming job um but you know you grow your passion to this point that you're 22 years old and then it's uh it's hard to let it drop so um it was a great place a great outlet for the, the music teachers from districts u46 300 303 301 um, i think it was largely made up of, of yeah community members that were that were excellent teachers well, how important is that, that having grown up in Elgin and dabbled in a cello and a clarinet and a piano here and there, um, I always remember then seeing those teachers on the stage at the symphony, which is hugely important from the student's perspective as well, you know, so maintaining that livelihood and passion as a performer, as well as engaging your current students is, is pretty important, I think. I completely agree. I mean, I, if, I think all of our music teacher, I, I don't know, I believe professional experience or kind of hands-on experience enhances any educator. And that's not to diminish any educator that doesn't have that at their disposal. But I think that anytime you can apply that real world um, practice and bring it back to the classroom, it's, it's pretty special. But it's also, it's really, I mean, we're so lucky in Elgin to have U46. And this is, again, no, uh, you know, we have the, some co the collar districts that are also very strong. But U46, being a unit district looms so large in our community. And that, like, that, that connection started from, uh, from the fact that those musicians were largely from that community. And so you are in the family business. <laughs> Your dad was a member of the symphony, you said. And so you grew up around this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was um, the <laughs> the orchestra raised me at, at, in a really cheesy way. But, I, you know, I came of age at a time when the orchestra was growing and it was very exciting to grow up together with the orchestra. Uh, my father was appointed uh, by Margaret Hillis in 1981. He joined the first violin section. Um, and, uh, through his tenure, uh, the orchestra went from a partially professional to a fully professional to a union orchestra, uh, to the largest orchestra in the state outside of Chicago. And they went from a, uh, uh I think a $300,000 annual budget to where we sit right now, which is roughly $2.3 million annual budget. Um, and I got to watch that all happen and the artistic growth, um, you know, from my entire childhood was the story of the growth of the Elgin Symphony. So it's been, it's a pretty fun, uh, it's been a pretty fun journey. <laughs> Did you uh, rebel against that at all? Or was it, you were just all in the whole time? 
Oh God, I'm uh, I'm not. I was never an interesting child. I was not rebellious. <laughs> I loved it. I was. It was so exciting. Well, and I have you know this this plays to sort of the the community roots of of what Elgin the Elgin Symphony was. And its longtime music director Robert Hansen was a good family friend. He, he was a member of the community as well. And you know he took me sort of under his wing and helped me get ready for college by allowing me to attend these rehearsals. He would help me like study the scores that the ESO was playing. It afforded me the chance to meet Itzhak Perlman backstage, to meet Yo-Yo Ma backstage, to meet Kathleen Battle, the, the legends of our industry. And so no, I had no reason to ever want to get out. It was it was pretty exciting. And so I've made a habit whenever I can to come back. I've always seen, I, I've been living away for, for many years, but every time I come home to visit my family of seeing a symphony concert, because it's it's quite special. But I mean, and, and coming of age in that way is pretty special to, you know, even just from the excitement of being backstage, you know, running through those places, that's so singular and and exciting. I'm I'm sure it was. Brilliant. I think I think nobody until you've until you've been backstage in a in a professional production, you know you have no understanding of how what that energy is back there. It's just an interesting interesting dynamic, and it's very fun. So when you were ready to hit the road and go to the go to college, what what did you decide to do? What was the the path there? Yeah, so I followed my sister as uh, as siblings tend to do. I ended up she had gone to Luther College, and I followed her. Uh, Luther is a, a school that is uh, uh, famous for its choral music program. Um, I've I've never been one that was good at committing to uh, to one area of music. Um, so I loved choral music. I was a singer. I've maintained that um, up through COVID. Was remained remained. Uh, active in this, this kind of side singing career. But I, uh, so I, I went as a vocal music education major, uh, but throughout my time in, at Luther, uh, and one of the nice things about these small liberal arts schools is that you can participate in a whole bunch of different activities and they don't kind of force you into one path. So I was fortunate to have an excellent violin teacher while I was there. I was a violinist um, my, my whole life uh, and he really encouraged me to see where how far I could go with it before, before turning solely to, to music education. And so after my time at Luther, I auditioned for graduate schools in violin um, and, uh, and ended up going to school out on the West coast. I went to the San Francisco conservatory of music, uh, where I did my master's in violin performance out there. Um, and, uh, that was kind of the end of my formal education. And then I, I ended up out in New York for, for the better part of a decade. And I went to Western Illinois university. So I'm familiar with Luther college where we kind of run in similar circles when it comes to like the American college dance festival and, you know, things that I'm familiar with places where those Midwestern colleges get together. And one of those things about going to a smaller school like that, that I found from a performance perspective is I got opportunities to perform in things and with choreographers and with partners that I never would have gotten at a bigger school and was able to make mistakes and not, you know, that then not get the next role or whatever it was. And that is just a, a huge part of, you know, what I know allowed me to become an artist and, and to grow in the field. And 
I'm, I'm wondering if you had a similar experience. Oh, absolutely. It's funny. I didn't know that you went to Western. I'm the son of two Western alums. Ah, um, yay. So, yeah, yeah, purple and white. Not only am I alum of Hampshire High School, which is purple and white, but there's been a lot of purple and white in my life. Uh, yeah. But uh, you no, know, I absolutely, and very well put. And I think that my my undergrad and grad school experiences are perfect juxtapositions. And, I, and, and they were right for the different times in life where I was there. But when I was at Luther, um, it was uh, it was the kind of if you were a serious student in your field, it was a, the faculty really was ready to invest in you. They were there. Um, they were there if you were. They were there for you at every every every, every point to guide you through the process, and they didn't have the level of um, of kind of international experience that the the conservatory faculty did when I when I moved on to graduate school. But they had this kind of uh, this willingness and desire to to take somebody with seriousness and give them every opportunity they felt was necessary um, to kind of nurture. And so I I walked out with a lot of ton of unearned confidence out of Luther, so, <laughs> uh, which was, you know, it's, and it was great because it allowed me to be smacked down at San Francisco enough, uh, but bounce back adequately. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And I think that's one of the points of grad school, right, is to just break you in half, <laughs> you know, and then rebuild from the rubble. And uh, uh, maybe those of us with a little too much bravado coming out of undergrad need that a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We all need to be a good slap down every now and then. <laughs> Um, so tell me about that grad school experience then and the, the kind of juxtaposition of the intensity and the, you know, caliber of surroundings and that sort of thing, not to mention the area, right? Yeah, well, I was going to say there's nothing could have been further from a town of 8,000 in Iowa with a small liberal arts college than, uh, than to move to downtown San Francisco. And and join this music conservatory. It was uh, San Francisco is uh, obviously an incredible city, but the music conservatory itself is a really unique place in the string department in particular, um, because unlike the majority, the majority of American conser I'm painting with a hugely broad brush right now, but the majority of American conservatories uh, right now foster this. Um, this career path of you're either going to be a soloist or you're going to be an orchestral musician. Uh, this is pragmatism at its finest, of course. You want to get people prepared for a job. But the the skill that it takes to play in an orchestra is very different. Um, it requires a level of kind of precision and kind of you have to shove yourself inside of a box in order to make it happen. And San Francisco, true to its city's culture, uh, the string department was much more about collaborative music, much more about chamber music, uh, which was really fun. So rather than blending virtuosity with orchestral music, it blended virtuosity with the intimacy and collaboration of chamber music and I think the thing that my I mean I had a phenomenal teacher there who was just a just a beautiful whack job uh, of a guy like just tremendous artist who just uh, lived on a different planet in the best possible way but the thing that I took away most from San Francisco was we had a weekly chamber music seminar every student that was enrolled in the chamber music program at San Francisco it was mandatory attendance and it was in the entire string and piano faculty that ran the seminar in an entirely egalitarian way. There was one person that was technically the point person, but it was a fully egalitarian panel. And you would sit up there, it would be, um, you know, 150 string players, all of whom excellent musicians. And we'd sit up there and your ensemble would play for the group. And then this group of people, one one of the faculty members would take lead in, in offering criticism and working with the ensemble. And then they would just bounce ideas off of each other. And you got to see these 10 or 15 highly accomplished artists just throw ideas off of each other, get into little arguments, but always in ways that were very 
um, that were about the art. It was so seldom about ego and just to watch excellence, not get, not let ego step in the way of excellence was it, that, that was a pretty eye opening thing for me. You know, That's beautiful. You're making me think about something I haven't thought about before. Right. So I, I can see, obviously when you're playing, you know, on a stage with a hundred, more than a hundred other musicians, right. You do have that box, as you said, you have to fit in. I, as much as I have seen the freedom of chamber music, I've never thought about it in that more collaborative free way, you know, from an outsider, it's still, okay, I'm playing this and I have to focus on this part. Um, but thinking about that collaborative nature of the smaller group is very interesting. Yeah. You know, I, um, I think this is something that's that non non string and piano players rarely, I, that's, that's not to discount, um, when, when quintet and brass quintet folks, but I think you often, um, there is no structure <laughs> in, um, in these chamber music rehearsals. Um, and so you have to learn, um, you have to, you have to play off each other in a very, um, healthy way or else you're going to be miserable. So to put together a serious string quartet requires um, a level of like of ownership, um, but but also a willingness to see that ownership to appear and that there's no, you know, there's this kind of fallacy that the first violin is sort of the leader of the ensemble, but they're not. And if they are, it's not a, it's not an effective chamber music ensemble. And so while an orchestra is a very hierarchical, you know, this is your conductor, this is your concert master. If you are back here, you don't talk. Um, you are expected to come to that rehearsal with your own ideas but be ready to seed them if a better idea or consensus dictates that you seed those ideas to the group. It's beautiful. Chamber music will expose all of your horrible personality flaws. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every metaphor analogy you're using transcends music, of course, right? Yeah. Relationships and collaboration. Living with roommates, you know, it's all. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's, that's really lovely. I, I have not thought about it in that way before. Um, so during and after that experience, are you, are you thinking I'm going to be a performer? I'm, you know, what, what's kind of the game plan for after grad school? Yeah. I mean, my hope at the, coming out of graduate school, I say all of my, my love of chamber music in, in place of orchestral music. Um, but the honest truth is all I ever wanted to do was to be an orchestral, you know, player. Um, and so I, I wanted, you know, I was, I started the process of taking orchestral auditions, which is just the worst, most arduous process in the world. And, uh, so I took a couple of these, um, I, I ended up actually, uh, I ended up playing in, in a couple of the regional orchestras out there. Are you a good auditioner? Are you good at auditioning? <sighs> I'm okay <laughs> at it. I, you know, we, yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's there. I, yeah. Auditioning is awful. It's just, awful. <laughs> it's just awful. And I, I mean, the, I have to, I only took a couple, I only took two very serious auditions. Mm -hmm. um, and like those I think are perfect examples of how nobody can really be good in that setting unless you're a complete, you're able to just shut all the noise out. So my first professional, like true full-time, you know, 52 week orchestra audition was for the San Diego symphony. And I went down there, I was flattered to get invited even to this audition. And I went down there and you are placed in a large room with uh, everybody else that's auditioning that day. And they're all playing the same piece that you're, you know, the, the repertoire is the same for everybody. And you're hearing them play and you're thinking, 
oh, whoa. You know, because like, you know, sure, you might be the best person at your school, <laughs> but but they were the best person at their school. And, uh, and then, you know, five minutes before, uh, some intern from the personnel department whisks you into a room. So you have five minutes of private time by yourself where you just sit there and shake. And then... Uh, the audition process, this is meant to make it blind. This is actually a preventative measure to stop discrimination against race. And there was also in very recent memory, uh, particularly recent in Europe, but a very recent memory that uh, women were heavily dis discriminated against in orchestral auditions. And so they created a blind process by which uh, women cannot wear heels as they walk on stage because that will give away. And the uh, panel faces away from you. So you, I'm walking out onto the stage of Copley Hall in uh, San Diego with a panel behind a screen so I can't see them and they tell you what they want to hear first and um, you're off and running. There's no, uh, you, it's in a, it's an excerpt from an orchestral piece being played completely naked on stage. It's awful. So no, I'm not a good auditioner. <laughs> <laughs> with backs to you, that's <laughs> yes, yes, and uh, and uh, unfortunately, the piece they wanted to, they always want to start with is uh, is Strauss's Don Juan, which is phenomenally challenging, and the first uh, uh -huh. the first two bars are um, make or break, and uh, mine was broken. <laughs> right. So in dance, people get cut at plies at the bar. The very, the very first thing. That's kind of the horror story of dance, right? And uh, plie, you, 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 got <laughs> <laughs> nothing worse than that. Yeah. So no, I I wanted to do that, um, and I. Uh, most people, there's these handful of people that emerge from music school that win their dream job immediately. They're very rare. They're few and far between, and they tend to come from one of three major conservatories. Um, and so I was offered a, a job by a, a company in New York that does tours for high school and college choirs to come to Carnegie Hall and do these performances. So I was offered a desk job there, but also to play with their orchestra. Uh, which is one a great chance to play at Carnegie Hall, but also to um, to get networked into that the freelance scene in New York, where you can hang out, play interesting gigs while you continue the audition circuit. So that's what drew me out to New York, and uh, and then yeah. That's How did that administrative part come into play? Is that something they kind of you know do to offset the situation, or did you ha had you already been working arts administratively or? I have always, so my dad uh, conducts a youth orchestra out here. I've, and I, I used to help him with like admit, I've always liked the process of seeing an orchestra come from a blank spreadsheet to the stage. And so, uh, the, the the gentleman that hired me was somebody who knew me from college and knew that I kind of had this this kind of affinity for organizing ensembles. That was kind of, uh, and so he, he was looking for somebody who was willing to work 80 hours a week for very little money. And, uh, and he found it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think, you know, the story you're telling is, of course, that of so many of us who leave undergrad or grad school as artists, right? It doesn't matter the medium, you find your way to perform or create, you find your way to financially support yourself. And then you do a 100 other things to keep those doors opening and and start to figure out that life. Um, were you surrounded by other fellow artists in New York kind of living living that life? Everywhere. 
everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And the ones that were more um, more true to the performance side still had that administrative side. They all they all had their side hustles. It was so rare that you met somebody that had a, was purely an artist that didn't have one of the New York Philharmonic or Metropolitan Opera jobs. In fact, um, I have a, a very good a friend, uh, a very good friend who's. Um, she was supposed to sing with us this last year at the Elgin Symphony. Um, she was um, Karen in Mean Girls, um, and she had a waitressing job that would allow her to do Mean Girls. And then she came back when she uh, when she left Mean Girls. And uh, I, I think people think that's a romantic tale, right? They think like that's something in books, and but that is, I mean, it's still. <laughs> I still have multiple jobs. It's still how people live and work in this by choice or out of necessity. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I find those people to be the most interesting because they have a diversity of experience that um, it's so easy, any field, music or otherwise, that like you get myopic. It's like you silo off and it's nice to like remember that there's a there's a big world out there of people that don't that don't wake, wake up, eat, breathe and sleep what you <laughs> Wake up, eat, breathe, and sleep. <laughs> yeah, we all can uh, remember that <laughs> from, <laughs> from time to time. Yeah. Um, so what brought you back here? How did, you know, what what kind yeah. of went from that till now? So uh, that's, <laughs> I mean, like all these journeys are kind of circuitous. So I only stayed at that company for a year and then I um, I hopped over to become an agent. Uh, I worked for a firm called Zemsky Green Artist Management. Um, so I became an, an agent for vocal, uh, vocal artists. And so I, I spent a lot of years, um, those agent jobs in classical music, particularly, I was lucky to work at a, this firm was um, a very high earning firm and worked very heavily in Western Europe. And so I was in this position where I was travel. I was in Europe twice a month, at least for these, these, and like when I first started doing it, it was so magical because you know, I remember only, oh gosh, probably five years prior, I had been on a on a college trip to Vienna and we stood in the back of the Vienna State Opera and watched a five hour Wagner opera. And it was, it was, it was so magical. And then five years later, I remember this like, surreal experience of coming to Vienna with a client and then walking backstage and introduce, you know, like, and, and, you know, saying hi to them, meeting the other artists, saying hello to the conductor. And this is kind of this dissonance of like, five years later coming back and and experiencing Vienna in an entirely different way and it was so fun up until the point that you realize that a hotel room in Vienna looks very similar to a hotel room in Toledo Ohio and uh, and I I got married in in 2018 and um and we we had kind of and my husband also is uh was in a, a heavy travel job and we kind of came to the realization pretty quickly that um, those jobs belonged in our 20s and early 30s. And it was time for us to um, just put some roots down and, and be human beings again. Um, and so, yeah, I started kind of I started kind of dipping my toe in the water and looking at uh, orchestral music has always been my first home and my first love. Um, and so last summer, summer 2019, uh, my dad kind of half jokingly let me know that they were advertising this position for the uh, for the artistic uh, planning job. In Elgin, and, dad um, half joke, right? Yeah, and the parents never half joke. <laughs> so, I, so anyway, I um, I actually didn't tell him about it until I was well into the interview process. Yeah. But I did, I did put an application in and, and talked it through, and um, and at the same time, my husband was offered a job here in Chicago, and so um, the timing just kind of worked out perfectly. And yeah, I could think of no 
you know, being being with an arts organization requires a level of investment that is hard to fabricate. And there's, you know, and there's no, there's no place and no group that I've been more invested in my, you know, in the, the length of my life than this, this place, you know, and, and that's, um, I don't, I don't know that I could ever replicate that, um, despite the fact that it's kind of necessary to have that kind of enthusiasm in order to do what we have to do. <laughs> that's such a great way to say it. It's uh, that enthusiasm is hard to fabricate, right? It's as, as I know, as we've grown and even other places I've worked, when you bring staff in, right, that comes and goes, it's hard to be like, how is this not your daily pet? You know, like yeah. my husband and I started this place. We wake up, we think about it. We, you know, I'm not saying that's good or <laughs> healthy. It's just part, you know, part but of it. it. And it, people yeah. sense the difference, you know, right. and that's like, that's right. not to say, again, we should all be careful not to become subsumed by what we do. Right. But like you said, you have to, I mean, our, our responsibility is to get people invested in what we do. And it's hard if you're not, if you're only halfway invested, it's, you know, people, uh, people sense that, you know, like yeah. that, so. You said, you know, a few times since we've been talking, you've said I was lucky enough to go to here or do this. And the word luck is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, and for, you know, frankly, trying to use less in my vocabulary because I'm like, <laughs> am I totally discounted? You know, thinking about all the grants and stuff we've had to be working on for our organizations lately. And I'll be like, we were lucky enough to get, and that throws away the 20 freaking hours it took me to put together. Right. And so of course there is luck involved in all of this. I'm a true believer in that. Um, but I would imagine during all of these years, you know, school and beyond, you're hustling. I mean, multiple jobs, yes, but practice and travel and it, it, all of those different things. Yeah, I mean, the arts require hard work, no question. Um, I have to say, you know, I'm so lucky. Mm, there it is again. <laughs> I, I, I find no myself, judgment. No judgment. <laughs> you know, I am, um, I am the picture of privilege in many ways, especially when it comes to our field. I, um, I was born into music and so I've never had to, I've never had to justify my, you know, my choice to be passionate about this to anybody. Um, you know, I was introduced to it, it was put in my hands, and I've always been surrounded by people that support and care. And so I think that like, while the hustle came, uh, as I came of age, I was offered an awful lot of opportunity that isn't afforded a lot of people. And so I I, I, I use luck, um, kind of overarchingly, because I, I find myself very fortunate to have been, um, you know, supported by people that I have been supported by. That is, an important baseline, right? If it, of understanding, if we yeah. start with this baseline of understanding of the luck was the access, right? And and knowing that that puts you however many yards ahead of someone next to you is is super important. And then and then what's next is also super important. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's hard to it's hard to force your head there, but once it's there, you see it everywhere. All these places where advantage was given, um, and yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and something we should all be, uh, if not more cognizant, just again, just our baseline starting point should be, let's start the conversation here. Right. And then we can all work together to move and grow and, and equity and greater access and all of that. Um, yeah. we all need to be aware of that, yeah. uh, particularly in the arts. Um, 
that makes me think of classical music in particular, right? So there's so much interesting, frustrating, beautiful debate and conversation about elitism, lack of equity, that sort of thing in the classical music world. And uh, let alone people, right, an audience aging out, you know, it's, it's, a half yeah. joke, right? That right. that classical music audiences are not going to be with us forever. And as ridiculous as it is, there are some truths to this. So, so yeah. tell me about where you are and what you're thinking about those eighty thousand issues I just brought. <laughs> I'm about to say we're wandering into a territory that you're going to get. A, you're going to get a monologue that <laughs> you haven't asked for. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, look, I um, it is an incredibly expensive hobby. Music is an incredibly expensive hobby. That an expense does not just mean dollars and cents. It means have the ability to invest your personal time, your parents' personal time and effort into developing, um, into developing your talent and your skill. I was able to when Itzhak Perlman. Uh, came and played at the Elgin Symphony Orchestra. He looks like what I might look like in 55 years. I'm able to see him and say that might be me. You know, I'm able to see uh, the 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 folks that sit on stage look an awful lot like me. It's very hard to take to put yourself in a position of looking at that. And if you don't resemble the people sitting on stage, to say I'm ready to invest this because I can see this as my future, and. Um, you know, anybody who's ever tried to do a whole 30, I'm on day 14, by the way, get like, uh, you know, 18 years of study is a long time. Uh, you know, it's hard enough to get through two weeks of commitment. So anyway, so um, addressing uh, classical music has a has a diversity issue without question. Um, it's, I think, incredibly telling that that diversity issue is present, but less striking in vocal, because one can become a skilled vocalist at, one can discover one's voice at age 19 and have it cultivated when you're mature and it doesn't take this lifelong um, uh, playing scales from the time you were, you know, a fetus on up through college. And so I think that this is really telling because that investment that it takes to become a great piano player and a great uh, a string player that takes you starting at three and diversity gets the orchestra becomes much more diverse. Um, once you wander into the wind and brass section, wind section, then the brass section, then the percussion section, then 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 voice, and that's all representative of how much time and investment it took. Now there are a couple of really phenomenal programs that are addressing this, um, and I I I, I wander like I said, cut me off, Aaron. I'm, I, I'm on a tangent here. No, nope, you know I I could do this all day. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I think we're we all we all try to represent, I'll try to address representation on stage and we can do that. And I have to say, I'm incredibly proud. It's not going to be for, for a few months now because we want to make sure things are COVID ready, but I'm very proud of what we're going to be putting on stage in our 21, 22 season. Cause it is, it is a very representative, uh, re representative soloist and conductor class. But the problem is um, that <laughs> to get a diverse looking orchestra, you have to start from the absolute ground up uh, because uh, a serious violin uh, runs $15,000 and up. A serious bow, ridiculous as it may sound, runs $2,000 and up. Mm -hmm. um, I think I took relatively inexpensive lessons as a high schooler and that was $100 a week. Um, it is It is a very expensive life and a very expensive hobby. And if somebody's going to commit to it, they need that commitment, not just in the form of a scholarship to go to college, 
a scholarship to go to a you know a junior and senior youth orchestra they need that commitment from age three <laughs> and there's some great programs that are addressing this um the atlanta symphony has a program that has taken it's just now starting to see the fruits of 15 years of labor as they've sent a class of people to the Curtis Institute of Music and to the Juilliard School, um, kids that they followed from the cradle on up. But the problem is volume, and they've been they've managed to do that for 15 people, and that's that's tiny. It's a huge, huge financial investment. So we're trying to address it at the surface level of putting invest and putting uh, representative soloists and conductors up in front of the orchestra so that a young person that doesn't look like me can see themselves reflected in that soloist, but that's not the full solution to the problem. It's a, um, and so we're getting there. And I think that it's really important to remember that in the nineties, there were no women in the Vienna Philharmonic. And right now it's a parody. It is possible for, to make change, but it takes, it takes a kind of a, a paradigm shift. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, even if we put, folks, more diverse artists on stage, how are we able to present them to audiences who maybe can't afford a ticket to get in the door? Now, you know, how are we working on those solutions? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So there are this is going to this is wonky. Uh, there are two uh, fundamental philosophies of ticket pricing. Um, uh, there is the dynamic pricing where you price your ticket as high as you can, uh, as high as you can in order to fill the house. Uh, and then there's the other model that is adopted by the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra in the early aughts, uh, where they said, no, no seat in our theater is going to cost more than $25. Uh, we are St. Paul's orchestra. We belong to everybody in St. Paul. Now, that's that's dangerous because um, we rely at this point on 30% of our annual revenue to come from ticket sales. And it's much easier when you're in financial distress, which this orchestra has been in financial distress, to take a look at that and say, what if we made it 35% of our revenue and all of a sudden we've solved our problem of, you know, of uh, Jerry Smith moving away to Minnesota. Now, uh, the, the, the problem here is that um, the more you play that game, the more you stop thinking about who you're bringing into the hall and you're just looking for butts in seats. And so our mission moving forward, we're not able to do the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra max 25, but our mission is if you are able to be a resident of Elgin and to live in, live in Elgin, you should be able to attend your symphony. And so we, we just did a really aggressive um, repricing of our, of our, of our seats. Um, uh, so it, it will have ticket prices that, that, that go rather low. And the, the idea here is, um, it's not to dumb down the product and not to, and like, I, um, I'm going to get into an angry tangent if I go down this direction, but there is old language that has been used by the symphony for the past decade or so that says we're really casual. We're really user friendly. You know, we're really, you know, like don't no stuffiness. And the truth is that's not our message. Our message is you deserve excellence. Socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic status does not equate to a desire to have less um, less access to excellence. And so I don't care if it's stuffy, if, it, if it's accessible to people that want the artistic and the uh, intellectual stimulation that classical music offers. And so, um, that, sorry. I'm no, <laughs> no I, I find it fascinating, important. And, and it, there's two things I want to like 
hammer on for anyone who's listening. One is that this huge what to what million dollar budget? Um, yeah, point three. Yeah, that 30% of that is ticket sales. I don't think enough humans in the world understand that ticket sales do not keep an organization alive. And so, you know, when people are like, hey, this costs so much or this, that, you know, it is, it is a fight. It's a battle between that. I want to share this amazing work with the world and we have musicians to pay and bills to pay and all of that. Um, I think that's important for more people to understand. And then there's that conversation, you know, that I, I think you're touching on. We talk about here a lot. Most of our stuff here is a $5 suggested donation, right? And there's still plenty of people who can't or don't or won't pay that. And that is fine. That's why the term suggested donation is there. But we often have conversations about perceived value of that $5 or if an event happens to be $10 or if it's free, um, are you the audience assuming then that that's all paid for and it's fine and or those artists are doing it for free or the staff is doing it for free? Um, those are important, significant conversations to have all while trying to disseminate beauty and yeah. culture. <laughs> exactly. And these are I mean, what 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 Sign Street does and what we do and what a lot of our colleagues in the chambers like on the Fox and folklore, these are luxury items for a town. You know, especially for a town uh, like Elgin, a smaller metro area, and uh, we we bring these luxury items and we do them on the backs of of uh, of people that have been willing to step up and and want to give back to their community. We're we're very lucky to have those people, but it is um, uh, it's a slog. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, those are huge philosophical, important conversations. What other um, uh, challenges or adaptations have you walked into, you know, for any orchestra, let alone the Elgin Symphony Orchestra, you know, in, in, your, oh, yeah. in your time coming in? What, what are things that you're, you're passionate about and looking at? Yeah, you know, you, you brought up something in, in your previous question that kind of points to this, which is that... Um, you know, the aging of an audience. This is something that's, um, it's, it's fascinating. You can see this, um, this conversation going back as far as 1950. Uh, there, are, there are publications about how the orchestra, orchestral audience is, is slowly dying off. And, uh, and, you know, we're, um, there's certainly evidence to point toward aging audiences uh, being problematic for us. But I, I, I strongly reject um, kind of the fundamental premise that like we're, we're aging ourselves out of, um, out of uh, relevancy, and this is um, actually my um, my board chair and I were having this conversation. Andre Fiebeck, who's, who's part of the, one of the kind of the legendary Elgin families here, and he um, uh, we're talking about this because he um, he was raised with classical music um, as a part of his uh, family. They they believed in classical music. They believed in attendance, and he was sent over to Germany every summer. And we were talking about. Um, he says, "Well, you know, isn't it fewer and fewer people that are." that are raised in that way to, to embrace classical music. And, um, I, I think that's, that's probably true. Um, but at the same time, I like looking at my peer group, uh, the folks that I, that I've spent time with both in New York and I don't really spend time with people here because I've been locked in a house since I moved here. But, uh, the people, the people that I've been lucky to get to know tend to be people that, 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 uh, that look like you and I, you know, where, you know, where young professionals relatively speaking although my hair is getting grayer by the day and um they're people with my that, eyebrows i'm just gray eyebrows that's look at, it's really it's seriously it's all <laughs> but um but they're people that are um 
that are intelligent, intellectually curious, and are now um, in a point in their life where they're, they've transcended sort of the hustle of their 20s and are looking for, um, looking for a quality night out that will leave them feeling with that they've achieved some level of intellectual stimulation. Somebody might not, it doesn't mean that you have to go see a program of, uh, of uh, you know, a Wagner Overture and walk away knowing the libretto to the, ling the ring cycle. It simply means that you go in, um, you have a good night, you have a good experience, uh, and, and, and you, you feel intellectually the better for it while still, and so I think our biggest challenge in Elgin and, and in our industry is creating experiences that are, um, that, that stimulate people intellectually, uh, and also, um, make them feel like they're having a nice night out. Um, it's seems cheesy and kind of reductive given how much we talk about the things that feel more high-minded than that but user experience is really 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 important to our industry and we often put the music on too much of a pedestal music is at the center but the experience and the um is is really much more important that we often make it you're making it so i have to tell you the story from high school but I my family and my grandparents often had season tickets to the ESO, you know, and we'd go and, you know, most of the time I remained engaged for half the show. And then, you know, my attention went elsewhere. Um, but especially later in high school, you know, I began really falling in love with it myself versus something that, you know, uh, grandma right. dragged me to once in a while. Um, and we brought my high school boyfriend to a show. He'd never been to the symphony before. Right. And, uh, we brought him and, you know, who, who knows what piece it was, who knows how many sections to it there were, but damn it all. If after that first section, he wasn't so engaged and just <laughs> clapped and whooped. And I, it, to me, it felt like the whole audience turned and looked at him because <laughs> he of course was not aware that we wait until the end of the entire jam before <laughs> we <laughs> dive in with that. And I love that story because he wasn't as a good human and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it also it is about that environment, uh, you yeah. know, they're, what can be a barrier is I don't know how to act when I go in this place. We think about that with our gallery. I don't, can I talk in a gallery? Can I clap between movements? Can I write what, how are we thinking about those barriers to I'm too nervous to go try this thing. You know, you are, yeah. And you're, you're putting your finger on the toughest thing I think that we have to deal with, which is that that issue um, is one that has less to do with the conductor, the musicians and the staff. And it has to do with audiences that do feel that like embrace that protocol. And some of that is, you know, I, you can't fault them for that. If for a lot of people that have been coming to, to performances for years, it's a spiritual experience for them. And they, they, the, the formality of it, it's, it's the, it's the church syndrome, right? It's the, it's the formality, the spirituality of it. That's very meaningful to them. But um, we're, I think we're slowly getting away from that as a classical music consumers. I think there's more of an awareness by, from people that, that care about classical music, that you can't treat people in your audience like, um, like the annoying kids playing on your lawn, you know? <laughs> and so, and so that, that's hard to train an audience when they feel like they're, they're the ones that are well-trained to be a little bit more opening, a little bit more accepting. Um, the other part of this, um, and pointing again to, to kind of a previous life in New York, I always found it really, uh, cool that 
my husband's friend, my husband's in management consulting, was in management consulting. So pr- most of his friends were also in either management consulting or, or banking or these kind of these other uh, businesses. And so they, they were all bright, all very um, uh, engaged people. And they were always much more aware of what was happening at obscure, uh, less of what's happening at the Metropolitan Opera and more of what was happening in places like this organization I loved, it closed, called Loft Opera where they would take opera, serious singers and a decent orchestra and then put it inside of a warehouse in Brooklyn, just a big warehouse in Brooklyn. You could go there, you'd sit on a bench, you could get up in the middle of the performance and refill your beer. Um, and it was a part of the kind of performance experience, which was a little, much more immersive. They did, the, the singers would, would, would kind of wander through the, the space and so their staging was in, intentionally immersive. And it was intentionally deformalized. So creating a concert experiences that are um, deformalized, deformalized, unfor- I have no idea what word I'm saying right now. Less but formal? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> that, like, that take, um, that create, um, not, that don't just allow for that, but rather encourage it um, is, is uh, it's tricky when, when we have a hall with patrons that are used to that but this is i think one of our big directional uh moves in the symphony is to find programming that allows for um for people to be a little bit more uh yeah a little more immersed um and a little less yeah. kind of form you know formal i get hung up on on the push and pull of preciousness a lot that's kind of the word that i keep coming back to right as if it's my art, right, it probably is the most important thing in the world to me, but also I want proximity to this and the performer. And also I don't want to have to learn too many rules, you know, because if, if I don't follow one, my ego's going to crack, right? <laughs> there, there's just so much involved in it, all while respecting the nature of the beast, right? Respecting yeah. what is being put out there. It's a, it's an, endless fascinating conversations it is it is it's a it's a big that's a big one that's 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 um (laughs) that will make the difference of what uh, our relevancy moving forward or whether or not we are um you know we are incorporated and and kind of overrun by better adapted um approaches i have no you know i remember this conversation happening around english english as a um official language in the u.s and i remember that one of the, my favorite statements i think it's from the west wing which says i'm not worried about protecting the language of shakespeare and like i'm not i'm not worried for a second <laughs> that there isn't a home for brahms in our future that there isn't a home for Mahler in our future i'm worried that some of the organizations won't know how to present it to people um you know yeah that's very well said so to that end, given our current moment, right? And I know in various groups and you and I have, have talked endlessly about <laughs> the COVID-19 pandemic and what it's doing to the arts and, and all of that. Uh, you know, just, if you can just really briefly tell us how the ESO has been impacted. What, what has been the impact on the ESO? Yeah, yeah. You know, we're, we're in a lucky position uh, where, um, lucky is the wrong word, but we, we are insulated from this in a different way because we are, um, our musicians are employees, but they're paid per service. And so we, um, when we don't perform, we don't spend money. And so, um, the people that have been extremely adversely impacted by this have been our musicians. Um, and we did, we were able to pay them out for our services in the spring, but, um, after that, you know, we can't pay for concerts that aren't happening. So I think uh, organizationally speaking, it's caused us to, uh, fall out of the public eye, um, which is always risky. Um, it's caused us to 
cancel an entire season of programming, push back a music director search. Um, and, but it's also caused us to, to rethink the, our programming model because uh, we're probably going to want to start performing again before we're comfortable being in a uh, enclosed hall with 1950s style ventilation. And so we have, uh, we're, we've started to, to explore other venues, uh, which includes we're going to be announcing officially in February, we'll be announcing our summer season. We're going to do three concerts uh, out at Gobert's Farm in Pingree Grove. Um, as far as an organization goes, we've we've been very lucky to have a lot of our supporters step up, stand by us. Um, but I think that I the thing that keeps me up nights is uh, is yeah, what's happening to the pool of musicians that make up the Elgin Symphony Orchestra. Absolutely, and you know a after these outside performances, which I can only assume as soon as we're able to do it, right? We're all just going to gobble up. I hope. Um, what, right. What is live music's path to return? I mean, from going to a club and getting sweaty and hearing a loud band, you know, to, like you mentioned, you know, lots of people in Hammonds and, and beyond that, um, can, can you see a path and, and what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I, I would ask you, I will turn that question around on you in a minute, but, um, I think what we've learned is that um, there are many different ways to skin this cat and that um, our audience reception to programs that we've done in non-traditional spaces has been overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly positive, um, and that while Hemmings will always be our home, Elgin will always be our home, that we in some ways have used this as an opportunity to break the shackles of conventional concert going as our only path forward. We have a relatively traditional season planned for 21-22, um, but that includes uh, the addition of outdoor performances and that uh, the long-term hope that we will be able to um, to appear in smaller forms, uh, that there'll be uh, 15 or 20 musicians playing uh, playing in non-traditional spaces and engaging in non-traditional collaborations. Uh, just before the pandemic, uh, they had programmed a really fun collaboration with a mariachi band from uh, from uh, Las Vegas. We've talked about uh, we've talked about collaborating with a with a sitar um, ensemble, just contacting communities that are not traditionally brought in uh, with orchestral music. Um, but that takes that takes flexibility. At this point, we um, the traditional model of having 68 to 100 musicians on stage um, pretty much dictates that you have to be in a traditional hall and you have to fill that hall in order to make it financially viable. So finding uh, finding small ensembles and putting them in places that people might be able to enjoy them in a more immersive and a more um, interactive way is 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 going to be our our path forward. No, but can I can I seriously take that turn that question around on you? I'm curious how you see this having changed. Yeah. Um, first of all, of all the things I have realized over the past few months that I take for granted, live music is first and foremost, you know, especially being at a producing venue where it, we get small bands in here on a Wednesday night. And, you know, I'll be like, I need a night off. I'm not good. What I wouldn't give for a room of teenagers playing their <laughs> hearts out uh showing their souls in a way that I never even would have been brave enough to do at their age. I just yeah. you know it's inspiring and beautiful and necessary and um for audience and artists mental health and physical health health and community engagement um 
music is just right at the top of our priority list. And, you know, just echoing what you're saying, I'm, I'm hoping we can move our battle of bands outside so that it can happen in some live in-person space next summer, um, because that is always such an amazing community time. Yeah. Um, and all the while maintaining a virtual component that I know so many of us have worked to grow, right? Because now we are able to get, whether it be, you know, world renowned musicians or those teenagers that are my new best friends rocking their hearts out to an audience beyond anything. And um, even coming from a space like Side Street that is literally not accessible to a lot of people, that is just another added feature that we're we're able to get out into the community. So I think it's going to be, you know, holding hands with the old sweaty close <laughs> closeness of live music and the new um, virtual plus outdoors equal safe and healthy and necessary yeah. uh, to, to try and walk that path a little bit. Absolutely. No, I love that. That's well put. And I, um, I'm excited. I, you know, the thing that we've, I think, taken away and learned from the virtual side of it. So we, we made a decision really early on that we're not a virtual orchestra, that if somebody wants to hear a virtual recording of Beethoven five, um, Berlin has a great one, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. a, and, and that we, um, we've, we've, pre- we've presented a virtual side of, of our programs, uh, in order to, so nobody f- feels left out because of health reasons. But, um, what we have on the digital side, what we will keep, um, is we did it, we did, a. uh, this accessibility to incredible lecturers and incredible, like we suddenly have the globe at our fingertips Mm -hmm. and we have two things in particular. We did a a lecture series with our pre-concert lecturer, but we had a guest lecture from uh, the, the head of the organ department at Howard university where he lectured on one of the great black composers of the 20th century, who was a personal friend of his. And he gave this incredible presentation which we would have normally would have to pay a thousand bucks to fly him out here, buy him meals, you know, give him a, a lecture circuit. And here he just, you know, he just hopped on Zoom and gave a talk to our folks, which introduced this music to our audience. Again, to have it be introduced to a, a composer firsthand for somebody that knew him. Can you imagine if you got to hear a Beethoven symphony, but was it was prefaced by a buddy of his? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, then, and then the other one is that actually next uh, next week, week after next, uh, Itzhak Perlman is going to come and do a personal event with us. He's going to come and oh. not play, but he's him in, in, and our music director, Andrew Grams, will do a little Q&A session for a couple of our, uh, you know, for, for a handful of our top donors. And it's, you know, again, never would he have flown out to Elgin just to hang out with Andrew for 20 minutes. Uh, but now we get him, you know, cause he can just turn on his computer. That's amazing. It, yeah. it really yeah. is. Um, we have to wrap up. I know you and I could go on forever and maybe we'll do another round someday. Um, but I did find this quote from an interview with you that I just love. You said you discovered that it doesn't take having a violin under your chin to create something impactful. And I just, I, I love that. I think that it it really resonated with me. I had similar reflections to being a dancer and choreographer and I get more joy out of seeing some collaboration that I have helped or led or been a part of doing its thing um, than I ever did from performing. And I got a lot of freaking joy from performing and Um, so I just found that really lovely and important for, um, people thinking about careers in the arts and, and all of that to understand, um, 
You know, it's not necessarily about retiring or quitting or being one thing or the other, um, but they can really live in the same person at the same time. Absolutely. And I think that you and I are particularly lucky to be in a city like Elgin where um, there's appetite for um, there's appetite for conversation. Um, and that we have the possibility, again, living in New York, you know, the Berlin Philharmonic would be there with Simon Rattle at Carnegie Hall. And I would never have heard about it until after it happened. Whereas I, you know, I remember growing up, I remember when Yo-Yo Ma was here, everybody who had, who had their antennas out knew about it. We have the possibility to, to facilitate an artistic conversation that, you know, that we might not even remember in the same way that the people that are, that are, you know, that are students that are coming of age will, it's a, it's, we have a, a possibility through artistic administration of, of really, um, of really elevating conversation for our community. And that's pretty special. <laughs> Agreed. Um, okay. So you just mentioned some awesome things coming up with the symphony. If I am interested in more information on that, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I find it? Sure. So that, that announcement will be made public in February. So keep an eye out on our website and our social media platforms. Uh, tickets will go on sale in February uh, and we'll be selling first just 100 tickets because if we're in COVID mitigation, it'll be very small audience. But as the COVID mitigation efforts relax, uh, keep an eye on the website because um, the venue is able to have up to 550 people out there. Um, so we're hopeful that we'll be able to have uh, full audiences. And that's elginsymphonyorchestra.org? That's right. Yeah. Excuse me, elginsymphony.org. Oh, elginsymphony.org. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure if you type in orchestra, it'll, you'll get there somehow. You'll, you'll but, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Eric, for joining Thank me. You. It's a pleasure to talk to you as always. Uh, hopefully we can have cocktails again. Oh, uh, I hope something. so. Your mouth again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you to everyone who's listening. Be sure to follow and rate and review and share connected. Um, and we'll keep this uh, little engine chugging along. We are at Side Street Studio Arts. You can find us at sidestreetstudioarts.org and all over the social medias. Uh, and you can tune in every Wednesday for Connected. Be well, everyone. Bye, Eric. <laughs> Bye. Connected is a Side Street Studio Arts production. Music by Tanner Melvin. Produced by Nick Mataragas. To find out more about Connected and all the great things Side Street Studio Arts offers, please visit sidestreetstudioarts.org.